All right, brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. Good to see you. Stand up on your feet. If you're able to, quick announcement before you, before we uh, say the creed this morning. Uh, stand up on your feet if you don't mind. We, uh, it's been so fun over the last couple of years watching this community grow and watching the Lord multiply ministry from this place. And uh, we have a new member uh, of our team that we're going to be adding in a little bit. So I wanted to give you a heads up about that. And uh, I wish I had a long time to tell you the full story of this, but, uh, and I don't, but I'll tell it to you sometime if you take me out to coffee or something. But uh, for the last 20 years or so, a guy by the name of Andy Rosier has been uh, one of the main worship leaders at Harvest Bible Chapel. And uh, he's also the founder and the director of Vertical Worship, uh, whose songs uh, many of you have heard on Spotify or wherever. And Andy has also co-written a number of songs with John Egan, uh, including the one that we just did, How Good Is He? Um, and Andy was actually here in October, uh, guest leading worship for us. And uh, through a set of just divinely orchestrated circumstances, uh, the Rosiers are going to be moving here to Colorado Springs. And we have been praying for a very long time at New Life Church about getting 24-7 prayer rebooted at the World Prayer Center. Yeah, many of you know that, that building over there really was built to be a place of unceasing prayer. And uh, that's kind of happened in fits and starts over the years. But we have just been feeling like we just need somebody to lead the charge on that. And so Andy and his wife, Joanna, and their four kids are moving here. Uh, he's going to be the director of 24-7 prayer at the World Prayer Center. And he's going to be joining our team here at New Life East, leading worship along with Andrew Cantrell and company. Uh, was just amazing. So uh, I think second Sunday of Advent is going to be his first Sunday here. I think that that's the first Sunday of December. So just be praying for them. Uh, the Lord has uh, laid the groundwork for them to be here. They've got a place to live. Now it's all about wrapping up a life that they've lived in one location for 20 years, and that's no small thing. And so be praying for them that that transition would be a good transition. Let's open our hearts and declare our faith together here. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. If you can agree with that, say real loud. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, we're in the book of Ruth, chapter 3. This morning, And if you've been following along this series, Ruth uh, is a book that takes place during one of the most violent and tumultuous periods in Israel's history, the days of the judges. And there is this little narrative that takes place that shows us how, in the midst of all of that tumult and confusion, in, in the midst of all that violence and chaos, God is still working out his purposes for Israel. And in chapter 1, uh, we learn about a man by the name of Elimelech who has a wife named Naomi and two sons, Malon and Kilion. And because there's a famine in the land of Judah, they flee Judah and they head to the land of Moab, which is very scary because the Israelites and the Moabites were always kind of at each other's throats. And so they go there, probably not expecting hospitality, but they find it and God's grace accompanies them even there. And while they're there, the two sons get married to a couple women, Orpah and Ruth. And uh, as it turns out, after a number of years, Elimelech and the two boys die and Naomi is left there with these daughters-in-law. And so after about 10 years, they hear that the Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing them with bread back in Bethlehem. And so Naomi, along with the two girls, start making their way back. And as they're going back, Naomi turns around and looks at the girls and she goes, girls, this is nice. And I'm so grateful that you've been really good daughters-in-law for me, but you don't need to do this. 
your mom and your dad's like, they're all back home, so you can go home and you go with God's blessing. So Orpah heads back, but Ruth decides not to. And she says the famous words to Naomi, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be your God. Uh, And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Ruth cleaves to Naomi. And Ruth's name, as we have learned, means refreshing. And so this young Moabite woman, a foreigner, all of a sudden is making her way into the house of Israel. And she's bringing refreshing to this family, not just this family that's been desolate, but really the whole nation of Israel that's been desolate, as we will learn. We get to chapter 2, and they're back now in Bethlehem, but things are not as they were. Some scholars actually believe that just by virtue of a number of clues that we have in the text of Ruth, Elimelech really was a man of standing in Bethlehem. So it's a little bit like the Rockefellers leaving, and then all of a sudden they come home, but they're not the Rockefellers anymore because of devastation that's happened. And you remember what Naomi says. She says, don't call me Naomi, whose name means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, the Lord has made my life bitter. And so she's a widow with this widow daughter-in-law, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to have a life. And what they find in chapter 2 is that there's this man by the name of Boaz who's just really kind to them and leaves grain behind for Ruth and treats Ruth kindly as they're gathering up the grain. And when Ruth comes back and reports this kindness of Boaz to Naomi, Naomi goes, hold the presses, right? This man is actually one of our relatives. In fact, He's a relative that's close enough to us that according to the laws of Israel, uh, he actually should take responsibility for us. We might actually have a future because of the kindness of this man, Boaz. Now we're going to open chapter 3 in just a second, but I want to just frame this by asking this question here. Because as we've been reading the book of Ruth, one of the things that Ruth ought to provoke in us is the question of how is it that God actually accomplishes his purposes in the world? See, what we never get in the book of Ruth, unlike so many other biblical books, is we never get God kind of taking center stage and going, okay, I'm here now, and now I'm going to direct this thing and make this thing happen. That never really happens. God is a behind-the-scenes character in the book of Ruth, as God is a behind-the-scenes character in most of our lives most of the time. And it starts raising for us the question of how is it that God accomplishes his purposes in the world? And Ruth chapter 3 gives us some important clues to that. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. And we love you, and we worship you, and we give you thanks forever and ever. Thank you for the presence that goes before us. Thank you for the presence that never leaves us or forsakes us. Thank you for the presence that holds us even when we're not aware of it. The psalmist, after waxing eloquent on how the presence of God goes with him wherever he goes, he says, and when I awake, I'm still with you. That even when we pass out of conscious awareness of your presence, you're still there. It's like you're waiting for us. You're always there. And so we trust that that is so this morning. We ask that you would give us insight and understanding to know, to see the ways in which you're active behind the scenes in our lives. How your goodness, your mercy, your grace are actually carrying the story every moment of our lives, even when we don't understand it and don't see it. Grant it, Lord. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see and hearts to believe what the scripture is saying. Come. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Ruth chapter 3, one day, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you or a husband for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. And tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So uh, wash, uh, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. And then get down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. In other words, get him in good spirits first. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. Now, I don't really know all what that means, but it doesn't feel like something that would show up in a Hallmark movie. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little PG-13-ish. And if you're feeling a little hot under the collar as this chapter, well, join the party here, okay? And he will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking, was indeed in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. And Ruth approached quietly... Uh, uncovered his feet, and she lay down. And in the middle of the night, something startled the man. And he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet, exclamation point. 
I would be startled too. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. For you haven't run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you whatever you ask. And all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely relied. So stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. And so she lay at his feet until morning, but she got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he also said, bring me out the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And then he went back to town. And now Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she asked, how did it go, my daughter? And then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, thanks be to God. Naomi here sees an opportunity, all right? And she takes advantage of the opportunity. She has this desire in her heart that Ruth would be married. And so when she sees the kindness of Boaz, she tries to set up the circumstances. I mean, she's really like what she's saying, scholars agree, that in this washing and putting on perfume and doing her hair up and looking all nice and putting on her best dress, you know what she's doing? She's, she's actually like getting herself ready for a wedding. And in a way, what she's doing is she's turning the tables on how a usual engagement would go, the man proposing to the woman. But she's actually going and she's proposing to him, hey, how about you marry me, right? Naomi is trying to take advantage of the situation here. And what's interesting about this is that two chapters earlier in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 9, when, when Naomi is standing there with the two daughters-in-law and she's ready to send them back to Moab, this is what she says, Ruth 1.9. She says, may the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. What is Naomi doing there? May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. What's she doing? She's praying. She's praying over them. My prayer for you as you head back to your homeland is that you'll find a good man and settle down with them and have lots of children. Now here we are just a couple chapters later. And Naomi sees an opportunity, and all of a sudden, she starts stepping into the very prayer that she had prayed. The Old Testament scholar Robert Hubbard puts it this way. He says that in response to providentially given opportunity, Naomi began to answer her own prayer. Now, just let that one sink in for a second. Naomi began to answer her own prayer. And thus, she models one way in which divine and human actions work together for what Naomi does. So the actions of Naomi constitute at the same time the actions of God. <laughs> There's a term that we use in the church to talk about the way in which God orders history, and that term is providence. You probably heard that term before. And the way that a lot of Christians think about providence, however, I think is not the biblical way of thinking about providence. The way that a lot of Christians think about providence is a little bit like um, how many of you when you were kids, uh, when you're getting ready for Christmas, what you did is you took the train track thing out. You know, did you have the toy train? How many of you did this? I'm dating myself here, 1981. We were still doing it in the 80s. And you took the little train track and you had the agency as the author of the track, right? To set it up however you wanted and all your little bends and twists and all those things. And then you put the train on the track and you turned it on. How much freedom does the train have to determine where the train is going to go? None. No freedom. Not any at all. Who is totally in charge of the scenario? I am, as the person that set up that track. That is how a lot of Christians think about the relationship of our God to the unfolding of human history. That what they think is that God has kind of decided ahead of time how everything is going to go, and he's written the script out ahead of time, and he's got it all figured out. And what we do then as human beings is we just are kind of on the track that God has put us on, and we just go wherever God has told us to go. And nothing can ever change that, which means that we don't really have any choice in the matter, do we? But there's a term for this, actually. And we know that a lot of Christians have heard of the term pantheism. 
means that God is all things, right? But, and that's a heresy. It's dismissed by the church. But there's a related heresy. It's dismissed by the church. And it's theopanism, which doesn't mean that God is all things. It means that, or not, doesn't mean that all things are God, but that God is all things. If we don't have any choice in the matter, if our freedom, if our agency doesn't count, then we're not really real things, are we? We're just figments of God, God's imagination, and he's just kind of doing this thing. Both of those views are sub-biblical. In fact, I would say that the way that a lot of Christians think about providence is not actually providence at all. The word for it is fate. And we don't worship fate, do we? We worship the living God. The relationship of our God to human history is different than that. It's not just about God setting things up and us running around the track. It's more complex than that. The theologian John Webster puts it like this. He says that providence is not a theory of history, but providence is what? It's knowledge of God, and it's known how? As God is known. See, providence isn't us thinking. It's not a theory of history, nor is it us just kind of having this idea about how it's all going to go ahead of time. But providence is knowledge of God, and it's known as God is known. And we know providence as we know who? God, who is the living God, right? Who's in a living relationship with us. And there are examples all through the scripture of what I'm talking about here. Think about the example of Moses. When Moses is up on the mountain, he's receiving the divine commands from the Lord. And the Lord says to him, this is Exodus chapter 32, 33, at 34. The Lord says to him, hey, uh, Moses, the people that you brought up out of Egypt, they've been quick to prostitute themselves to other gods. They're down there at the foot of the mountain. They're worshiping the golden calves. Leave me alone, the Lord says, and my anger is going to destroy them. And do you remember what Moses says? Moses does not roll over and just go, oh, inexorable deity. You're just going to do whatever you're going to do anyway. Do you know what Moses actually says? You can read about this in Exodus. He goes, really? So the big plan, Lord, was that you're going to deliver your people up out of Egypt only to crush them in the wilderness the first time they screw up? You can do that if you want, but you know that everybody's going to make fun of you, right? It's kind of a bad look for you, Yahweh. <laughs> and he's not struck dead at that. Do you know the scripture actually says that Yahweh reconsiders? He goes, okay, we'll go with that. Not killing them. Not today. <laughs> Another example from the scriptures in the book of Isaiah. There's a very good king in Israel, Judah, by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah walked with the Lord faithfully. And one day, Isaiah gets a word from the Lord that's kind of a downer for Hezekiah. Isaiah gets a word from the Lord that says, hey, you need to go to King Hezekiah and tell him to set his house in order because today he's going to die. He is not going to recover. It's like kind of a rough day for Isaiah. Oh, man, I don't know how I'm going to break this one to him. So he goes to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. I know I've tended to like give you pretty decent messages, but this one's, this one's rough. This is what the Lord says, and he delivers the message from God. And you know what Hezekiah does not do? Hezekiah does not just kind of roll over and go, well, God, whatever, you know, whatever you've decided ahead of time, that's uh, nobody can change your mind. Do you know what Hezekiah does? He goes, what? Really? Lord, haven't I walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes? And then he falls on his face and he weeps bitterly, the scripture says. And you know what the Lord does? He goes to Isaiah and he goes, hey, uh, tell Hezekiah I'm giving him 15 more years. <laughs> Just like that? Really? What about the great divine plan? Well, apparently it's a little bit flexible. <laughs> or think about John chapter 2, you know, the miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. The wine runs out and Mary says to Jesus, hey, they don't have any more wine. And do you remember what Jesus says to Mary? Woman is what he says first. Okay. Which like, I know Jesus is the son of God, but don't talk to your mom that way. If you want your afternoon to go good or the rest of your life. Don't talk to your mom that way. He says, woman, my time has not yet come. This is a theological statement. <laughs> He's saying that like in the unfolding of the divine will, this isn't really part of the program. My father in heaven has not told me to do this thing right now. And you know what Mary says? But your mother on earth is telling you to do it right now. <laughs> She actually, even better than that, she actually doesn't say anything to him. She stops talking to Jesus at that point. She's like, yeah, whatever. She turns to the servants and she goes, do whatever he tells you. And I'm sure that Jesus is over there in the corner going, what? 
All right, it's my mom, you know, and he does it. And the mirror, think about this for a second. The miracle that we celebrate in John chapter 2 happened not because God decided ahead of time that that miracle was going to take place, but because Mary thought this is the right time for a miracle of God to take place. We have something to say in how human history unfolds. Things happen or don't happen in the story of God with us because of the choices of human actors, brothers and sisters. We have a say in how things turn out. That's the actual situation between us and God. I'll give you an example from my personal life. Mandy and I have been married now for 21 years. And uh, we knew each other uh, a lot longer before we got married. We were friends all through high school. And uh, our relationship had all these brilliant kind of ebbs and flows. And almost from the beginning, we could tell there was like chemistry there, you know, sparks kind of starting to fly just a little bit. And uh, when we got to my junior year, uh, her senior year, Mandy is a year and three months older than me, so married an older woman. Good job, Mark. When we got to my junior year, the spring of my junior year, all of a sudden, like, there is this chemistry that's really starting to happen, you know? And the energy is starting to build. And I don't, I don't know, like, if it's been a long time since you fell in love, but do you remember what that was like? It's like this volcano of, like, energy building up inside of you, you know? And you just don't know, what am I going to do with all this energy, you know? And so we got to graduation day, Mandy's graduation day, and we went to this small private Christian uh, high school, and so there were a number of folks who graduated that same day. So that whole day was filled with all these graduation parties, and it was so fun. And I also knew that there was this, like, moment of decision coming, because Mandy, at that time, was getting ready. Like, her plan after graduation was to move off to another city and go to a music conservatory. So, like, our paths were about to diverge. And so we're at these graduation parties all day, and I'm feeling this, like, building up inside of me. And the graduation parties are over. And we wanted to still party and hang out. And Marshfield, Wisconsin is not a very exciting place. So you know what you do for the after party? You go to Perkins Family Restaurant is what you do. And so we all sat around Perkins drinking Diet Cokes and eating bread bowls and dipping them in ranch dressing, which was a thing back then when you were a poor high school student. And that's what we did. We hung out there for a couple hours. And again, I'm feeling the pressure building up inside of me. And I need somebody to give me a ride home. So I go, hey, can anybody give me a ride? And who volunteers? Mandy volunteers. This feels like Providence to me. So we pile in her little Toyota Corolla and we're driving down Oak Street and the volcano is building. And then we turn on Adler Road, which is where my parents lived. And at this point, like I cannot contain the energy that has been building up inside of me for months. And so I say with, with great eloquence and tact, it's no wonder she fell in love with me, you know. <laughs> I say to her, are we something? I just blurt out. Which is a little like, do you remember the old David Letterman sketch? Like, is this anything? That's what it was for me. It's like, this, we can't not talk about this anymore. This thing has been happening, you know. And I, so, and I remember Mandy, she, like, she decides to play dumb about it. She goes, what, I, what are you talking about? And I go, I'm so angry at this point. Now my love for her has turned to fury, you know, which is a lesson in itself. <laughs> you know darn well what I'm talking about is what I said, you know. Like this thing that we've got going on, is this something? And she pulls over, she gets real quiet. And we kind of talk it out for a second and we realize now we're at that crossroads and it's time to have like a significant conversation about the future of the relationship. And so what do we do? We go back to Perkins Family Restaurant <laughs> to have a couple hours of conversation and the rest is history. They all live happily ever after. Yeah. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> Here's the thing to notice though. God didn't do that. Right? Andrew did that. And I think that God was setting up those circumstances. I think that God's hand was in that scenario. But the choices were my choices. And what was going on in my heart was what was going on in my heart. And I made the decision that I think was the right decision to make. It was also the decision that was most deep in my heart to make. Was that the absolute perfect will of God for my life? I, I think maybe, yes. But I don't know. I don't get to stare behind the curtain. All I know is I did a thing that felt like it was the right thing to do, you know? You say, well, what if you hadn't had that conversation with Mandy that night? I have no idea what would happen. Maybe what would have happened is that through a set of other circumstances, God would have brought us back together. Then that could have happened. Or we never wind up together. And if that had happened, I promise you the story of God and the story of our lives would have still ambled happily along. 
Do you realize that God is not dumb? I mean, that night, if I had not had that conversation with Mandy, I, there's no way that God in heaven would have gone, Jesus! He didn't do it! <laughs> what are we going to do now? That's never happened. That's never happened. The way that our God works is that he takes the things that we do and he wraps them seamlessly into the divine plan. So that, remember Paul's great statement. He says, so we know that in all things, God what? Works together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so many of us get so hung up on the idea of like, what is the perfect will of God for my life? Is it this thing or is it this thing? Is it this decision or is it that decision? I remember years ago when I was pastoring in Denver, this young lady came to me and she said, Andrew, I got a question for you. I said, okay, shoot. She goes, I've just finished up law school and I've got two like incredible opportunities in front of me. I said, tell me about them. She goes, well, the one opportunity is back in my hometown. I think it was Indianapolis or something is where she was from. And these are the pros for it. And there's a few little cons, but like it's a really good opportunity and it pays pretty good. I said, great. What's the other one? She goes, well, the other one is here in Denver and it's with this firm that I've been doing some paralegal work with for a little while. And they also can pay me pretty good. And I got friends here. And so here are the pros and here are the cons. And I said, okay. She goes, so what do you think I should do? And I go, I don't have a freaking clue what you should do. <laughs> but they don't pay me enough money <laughs> to have opinions about things like this. I'm sure she's thinking like, you need to get a new job, man. Like, you're the worst pastor I've ever been around. But I don't know. Do you know what I said to her? I go, well, let me try to make it a little bit more clear to you. What do you want to do? She goes, well, I think I'd actually like to go and be closer to my parents. I go, great, do that one. And it was like so like alarming for her. Well, shouldn't there be more to it than that? No, there shouldn't be more. To I mean, pray about it. Pray about it and seek counsel with your friends and your family and all of that. But in the end, you got to like make the decision that's on you to make. Do you realize that that's how it is with our God? That most of the time, like, what never think about this, and here's what's so remarkable about the book of Ruth on the question of providence, is in this book, not one time do we see anybody getting a word from the Lord. There are no angels showing up with flaming swords telling people, if you don't do this, you know, that, like that never happens. There are no signs. There are no wonders. There are no miracles except for the steady miracle of God working out his purposes inside the choices that human beings make. And that, by the way, this is what most of our lives are like. And I have had, when I think back over my years of following Jesus, I can think of a handful of times when it was very obvious that God was leading me in a specific direction. Mandy and I just really felt pulled in one way and we prayed about it or whatever. Or there are times sometimes that God narrows the road down. And it's like all we can do is this thing and you just know the hand of God is on it. Most of the time, that has not been the case. Most of the time, it's been a matter of kind of muddling our way through and sort of, I don't know, it seems like the right thing to do. Does it seem right to you? It seems right to me. Okay, great. And what God does is he lays his blessing on it. Here's what I'm trying to say to you this morning. And I want to like liberate some of you. Some of you are stuck in your lives because you're waiting for God to show up and tell you what to do. And the whole reason that your life isn't in motion and like none of the things are happening that you wanted to happen with your life is because you're standing around with your hands in your pockets and you're waiting for some sign from heaven or you're waiting for the angel with the flaming sword or you're waiting for this perfectly clear word from the Lord. And I've just got news for you. God has given you your life and he wants you to live it. I need some more amens for you. It's your life. What are you going to do with it? The great poet Mary Oliver once said, what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? What are you going to do with it? But Andrew, I'm so afraid of making the wrong decision. What if I step outside of the will of God? What if I make a mistake? How dumb do you think God is? <laughs> that if you decide to marry this person, not that person, or take this job and not that job, that all of a sudden God is just totally flummoxed by that. You know, oh, back to the drawing board now. You know, Vicky screwed it up, right? <laughs> it doesn't happen that way. 
What the Lord does is he takes all of the things that we decide and he works them into the divine plan. Friends, live your lives with the agency that you have, the stuff that's in front of you. The psalmist said that the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You know what I think delights the heart of God? When we live our lives with joy and courage and boldness and passion, and we're not standing around all the time going, I'm just not really sure if God told me to do this. Golly. And do you know what that really is? I'm like on a bit of a rant here. Forgive me. If you guys are good with it, I'll keep going. Okay. But do you know what that really is? That whole like anxiety about getting it just right? That is the attempt to be justified by our works and not by faith. One of the great doctrines of the church says that we are justified. It's justification by faith, which means that we are not justified by anything else. You are not justified by your ability to get the will of God just right. You are not justified by your ability to hear the voice of God just right. You are not justified by your ability to know the plan of God just right. You are justified. I am justified. We are justified by faith. So what we do in our lives is we cast ourselves wildly into the mercy of God. And we trust that God is telling the story in such a way that all things are going to come out right in the end. Can you receive that this morning, brothers and sisters? And those Christians that wander around always acting like they have a word from the Lord for every little decision, like I got a word from the Lord. I'm eating at McDonald's today. They're delusional. (laughs) God just doesn't work that way. One of the great monks of the 20th century, Trappist monk by the name of Thomas Merton, he put it this way, one of his great prayers. He says, my Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever felt that way before? You have no freaking clue where we're going. He says, I don't see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean I am actually doing so. That also is a word from the Lord for some of you. You know, just really doing what God told me to do. That doesn't mean that you actually are doing what God told you to do. You're a finite, fallible human being. You're doing the best that you can like all of us. Just be more humble about it. (laughs) Stepping on toes all morning long here. He says, but I believe that the desire to please you, the desire to please you, does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I'm doing. And I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. And therefore will I trust you always, though I seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear for you are ever with me, and you will, never face me to pay, face, you will never leave me to face my perils alone. It's more like that, guys. At best, God here and there will, like, he'll flash like a strobe light into our experience, and we'll see kind of a flash of what God, but most of the time, we're walking in the darkness, and we're doing the best that we can with the information that we've been given, and we're trying to make good decisions, and even still in that, God has this way of folding all of that into the divine plan. Can I get an amen? Amen. But there's one last thing to say. The thing to notice about this story is the way in which the human actors in the story actually use the freedom that God has given them, the choices that they've been given. The thing that you notice in what Naomi does here is that Naomi uses her choices for the good of who? For the good of Ruth. So she's got some agency left, and so what she does is with her, her knowledge of the mystery of men and women and how they work together, what she does, she goes, these are my instructions to you, young woman. You're going to wash and put on your best clothes and get yourself all looking nice, and you're going to go make this thing happen with Boaz, and hopefully, hopefully, we've got a shot at getting a husband for you. Naomi uses her choice for who's good. Ruth's good. But when Ruth gets into the situation with Boaz... Do you know what she doesn't do? Ruth isn't sitting there with Boaz looking at her going, well, if you like it, then you better put a ring on it. That's what she does not do. (laughs) Do you know what Ruth does? Ruth doesn't say, hey, we should get married. Ruth says, 
you are a kinsman redeemer for us. She invokes, she uses her agency to invoke his sacred obligation, not just for her, but for Naomi and the whole clan of Elimelech. So who is Ruth using her choices for? Naomi. And then we get Boaz. And Boaz in the situation has every opportunity to take advantage of Ruth. But he doesn't do it because he's thinking about the good of Ruth, isn't he? And then what beyond that, when it comes down to it, he goes, do you know there's actually somebody who's more closely related to you guys than I am? So we're going to do this the right way. Boaz, think about it, he respects Ruth so much and respects everybody in the town so much that he refuses to game the system. Boaz uses his freedom for the good of other people as well. We are most like God and we partner most deeply, brothers and sisters, with the purposes of God when we act for the good of others. It's the actions of this people in this story, all of which are unselfish actions, that open the door for God's kingdom to come into the world. The baby that is born by Boaz and Ruth winds up being the grandpa of David, who is the grandpa of the Messiah. And all of that happened because people use their choices for somebody else. Are you with me this morning? We are most like God, and we partner most deeply with the purposes of God when we do likewise. One story for you, and then we'll go to communion. We came here in 2017. I was on staff with the Friday Night Community. And uh, as you know, we helped plant a church in Denver. We were very exhausted when that whole thing was over. And, and coming to New Life for us was a sanctuary. It was a respite. It was a good place to be. And sometime during the, I want to say, the early part of 2018, maybe the middle part of 2018, Pastor Brady came to me and said, hey, I really think that we're supposed to plant a new congregation on the east side of the city. And you've got experience as a church planter. And we like what we see in you. And I think you're the guy to plant this church. And I remember saying to him, I don't think I'm the guy to plant this church. <laughs> still very messy in my own heart and grieving still and all of that. But he just was persistent with it, kind of kept with it. You know, I think you're the guy to do this, Andrew. And I'm like, I don't really think I'm the guy. I see big things for us on the east side of the city. Maybe you need to find somebody else, you know. And Brady just kind of got away, you know. He was very persistent with it. And so in December of 2018, Mandy and I just decided to take some time and really pray about it and think about it. And do we feel good about this? And so we did, just like I suggested. We talked about it with friends and family, and we prayed it through, and we tried to make a good decision. At the end of the day, we just felt like God's hand is on this, and it's time for us to give our yes to this. And so we circle back to Pastor Brady. Brady, we're in. We can do this. And he's over the moon about it. Yay, I'll tell all the elders. And we start talking with the team, you know, and the gears are, are turning. And um, <laughs> a couple months later, I'm still just not feeling settled in my spirit about it, you know. I'm just not sure. Am I the guy to do this? And I lead our podcast here at the church. And so one day Brady and I were recording a podcast together, just the two of us. And the podcast ends and we shut off the microphone. And I just tell him, I was like, Pastor Brady, listen, I got to level with you. And this felt like, honestly, it felt like one of the riskiest conversations in my life. <laughs> I said, look, I got to be honest with you. <clears throat> I know that we told you yes, but I'm just, honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I can. I I'm not sure if that's a call that I can accept. I'm not sure if I want, may, I don't know, maybe I still have church planting in my heart somewhere else. Or I don't know, maybe I want to stay with the Friday night community. I just don't know. I'm feeling all messy in my spirit. And I honestly thought at that point, I was like, there's a good chance that he's just going to get frustrated with me. And he's going to tell me, look, the elders, things are in motion. And we've already set aside money. And we've communicated this to people. And how can you do that? You better make a decision today, kid. And he didn't do that. You know what he did? He looked at me across the table and he said, Andrew, listen. I think that you're the guy to do this work. I just see God's hand on you, and I think that this is what the Spirit is saying, but I'm not going to assume that for you. If you want to, let me say this to you as clearly as I can. He goes, if you want to stay with the Friday night community, you will not disappoint me. And if you have some other thing that you want to do for us here at New Life North, you will not disappoint me. And if you tell me that you want to go plant a church in Boulder or Denver or Timbuktu, We'll send you out of here with blessing and you will not disappoint me. And if you do the East Congregation, you don't earn bonus points with me. You need to make the decision that's best for you and best for your family. And you need to make that decision with peace in your heart. And here we are. And if that conversation had not gone that way, and he had every opportunity inside that conversation to act selfishly. I really need to get this congregation planted. 
and then use me to advance his goal. Instead, he goes, no, I'm going to use like the agency that I've got to get you where you need to go. You make the decision that's best for you. And if that conversation had gone any other way, if there had been an ounce of selfish ambition in it, I promise you I would have bailed out on that. Not doing it, I'm out, totally out. And none of this that we're experiencing together would have happened. This happened because somebody decided to act unselfishly with what they've been given. And by the way, that is the way that it is with our God who makes himself manifest to us in Jesus Christ, who did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, he considered other people as more valuable than himself, looking not to his own interests, but to the interests of us, and thereby we are saved. Can we stand this morning and prepare our hearts for communion? Do you know what the great destiny of God for all of our lives actually is? It's to make us like Jesus. (laughs) That's the destination. And so here we are, Lord Jesus. Would you just lift your hands, family? With all that we are and with all that we have, all of the agency that you've given us, all of the ability to affect outcomes, to make things turn out a certain way, we're here before you with that. And we ask this morning you would so fill us with your spirit that you'd push out of us all selfish ambition and vain conceit and that you would help us, like Naomi, like Ruth, like Boaz, use all that we have for the good of other people and we pray that your kingdom would come into the world through it. Grant it, we're asking. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, we make this our prayer before you. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And the scripture says, that if anybody is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. If you can receive that this morning, give God praise, family. Let's respond in worship, and then Pastor Colin will lead us to the table. Friends, let's sing these words together, believing that God is with us every step of the way. We sing. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Jesus, the name above every name. Jesus, the name above every other name. Oh, Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. song worthy of every song we could ever sing worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you we live for you Lord 
be with you. Lift up your hearts. We're going to pause right there. And would you lift up to the Lord the desires in your heart? I want you to just hold them there. If we delight ourselves in the Lord, He gives us those desires. And our God is generous. He does not find fault with you. Through the blood of and the body of his son Jesus. You hold in your hand these elements. God is a good God that he gave himself up for you. And that process of going on the, going to the cross to die for you, 
Jesus even struggled with that being the will of his father, discerning that will. And he said, God, if it's your will, would you remove this from me? For the joy set before him. Our God is a generous God. Would you hold those desires before him? I sense this morning that there are just struggles with what's in your heart. Of God, of asking God, God, will it come into completion? Will this come true? Will you restore from this loss? We don't know what God will do, but we know that he wants relationship with you. He wants to be with you in it. And that's what this, these elements represent are his body and his blood that he's been, he gave himself for you. Would you hold the bread in front of you and just break it? This is his body that was broken for you. Would you receive the bread? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. The cup of salvation, which is for you, you can receive it. And now we respond by simply giving God praise. Would you lift your voice? Praise God from whom blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. up your hands like this family and receive this benediction as you go. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the great John Wesley used to say, best of all, God is with us. Wherever you go, God goes with you working everything out according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose and the pleasure of his will. You are God's delight, and it goes with you everywhere. Hallelujah. Amen. Uh, I'll invite our altar ministry team. That's not the usual way of ending it. Um, I'll invite our altar ministry team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you. Remember to stop and see us at Connect Central on the way out. If you're interested in being part of Travis's new team, make sure to talk with him about that. Brothers and sisters, you are loved. We will see you next Sunday.